a courtroom is one of the places in our world that is most ripe for drama. Uh, events can drag on in a courtroom, I know that, uh, but they are places that are punctuated by dramatic, sudden, life-altering changes. Um, you know this, and, and if you didn't know this or nev- never thought about it, one of the ways that you could tell that a courtroom is a place rife for drama is by looking at the television listings. Um, without much effort uh, this week, I found a list of 120 television shows about lawyers. Some of them are older than others. Uh, let's see if you remember some of these shows. Boston Legal, Law and Order, L.A. Law, Allie McBeal, The Good Wife, Suits, Perry Mason, there's going back a little bit, Matlock, The Firm, oh, and the list goes on and on and on. Isn't it funny? Lawyers are the type of people we like to make jokes about, for, but for some reason we also want to watch them on television. Uh, you remember reading Shakespeare in high school and there'd be these long speeches and you'd think to yourself, oh, this is so dry, it's so boring, I'm lost. But then you tune in to watch people make long speeches in courtrooms. You're waiting to see how is this man going to prosecute? How is this defense lawyer, how is she going to get the, the, the accused off? If you like those scenes, you will appreciate the passage of Scripture that we're studying today. We at our church have a practice of working systematically through books of the Bible, and we have been for several weeks in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, towards the end of it, we're in the last part, the last seven chapters, about a quarter of the book, we find the Apostle Paul in prison. Um, he was arrested. We read that a few weeks ago. He's going to go through five trials total. We've been through the first two. This is the third one I want to think with you about, and it's the first Roman trial. I want you to do two, 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 do two things, please. First, take your Bibles and turn to Acts 24. Let's do that first. We'll get to Acts 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can take one in the pew ahead of you. Uh, there is a Bible there you can find, and you can find Acts 24 in it. Um, a friend of mine this week was joking with me. He said, these pew Bibles, we've been in Acts for so long that if you just take it and hold it open and let it fall, it will open automatically to the book of Acts. If you open it to some other passage in the Bible, the, the pages will squint because of the bright light. So Acts 24 Um, If you don't have a Bible, I'll just say this. If you don't have a Bible at all, please feel free to take that copy in the pew ahead of you. We would love for you to leave. Uh, You take it as our gift. We have a whole storage room full of them to replace them if you take one home. So um, anyway, I want you to open your Bibles. And then I want you to open your imagination because we're going to set up this courtroom scene that we have in Acts 24. So we need to start, this is how it goes, we need to start with a judge. In this passage, the judge is the Roman governor. He is ruling in Caesarea, that's the headquarters for the Roman army, and he's going to be in Caesarea and he will sit there. Where will the judge be? He'll be up front in the center, an important place. His name is Felix, the judge. Not the cat, the judge. Felix does not come across very well in this passage of Scripture. He's the judge. Now, over on one side here of the courtroom, we'll put him over here, we have the prosecution. And the prosecution is uh, being conducted by a lawyer whose name is Tertullus. Tertullus is a hired lawyer. He's a hired gun. Um, In this day in Roman courts, private citizens brought cases 
uh, there was no such thing as a state prosecutor. There was Tertullus, and he had been hired by the Jewish religious leadership from Jerusalem, represented uh, most importantly in this passage by Ananias, the high priest. So we have Tertullus for the prosecution over here. Of course, Felix is in the middle. And on this side, we have the Apostle Paul. He's the defendant. He's on trial. Paul's going to represent himself. Have you ever heard that expression that the person who represents himself has a fool for a client, right? Okay. Well, here's Paul. Paul's going to represent himself. And contrary to what you might expect, Paul is, is hardly the underdog in this fight. Because when this trial is over, the prosecution is going to be, their, their case is going to be in shambles, and, and the judge is actually going to be afraid of Paul. That's pretty much a win. So Paul for the defense. Now, now before we, we read this here, um, if you have it pictured in your mind, one of the questions that we have to ask is, why did Luke put this trial before us? Why is this here in the Bible? If you're not very familiar with, with the Bible, you might be surprised it's here at all. You know, the Bible has some wonderful miracle stories. There's a guy in a fish and a guy in a boat and just some amazing things in it and some songs and some proverbs. You, you might be surprised that there's court drama in the Bible. Why is it here? Uh, in some ways, oh, the Bible's great hero, the Apostle Paul on trial. In some ways, actually, the scene here is reflective of the nature of the Bible itself. This book, this Bible, is a book that is willing and able to stand trial, to represent itself, to defend itself, to anticipate objections and arguments and answers. The Bible itself has been admired and studied by people who are far more intelligent than I am. And even its critics, those who don't agree with its central teachings, acknowledge that the Bible is a pretty formidable foe. It's not afraid to enter the fray. Luke wrote this so that we would know that, so we'd remember that. The Bible is, is defendable, defensible, and its, its message he also, though, wrote this because he wants you to know what Christianity is really about. You may not know it as well as you think you do. Tim Keller said this week, the problem Christians and non-Christians have, both have, we think we really know what Christianity is about. This trial's here to clarify that. Do you remember, if you've been around for a while, you probably remember Theophilus. He wasn't at the trial. Theophilus was a man who uh, was the actual original recipient of Acts. Luke wrote Acts for Theophilus. And Theophilus had some questions about Christianity. He needed it clarified. One of the questions he had was, is it possible to be a good Christian and a good citizen at the same time? It seems like he had some sort of Roman uh, authority, some sort of Roman office, maybe like Felix and he's wondering, he's heard about Jesus, he's actually a follower of Christ, and he's thinking, he has questions about it. Can you be a good Christian and a good citizen at the same time? Or, huh, you might ask something similar, the way sometimes we see ourselves portrayed in various uh, avenues, you might wonder, can you be a faithful follower of Jesus and not be weird, or not be obnoxious, or not be angry? Well, let's walk through the text. I want you to see this trial, and as, as we go along with that, I want to ask you two questions, two questions that will clarify your understanding of Christianity. Here's the first question. Do you know that Christianity is about resurrection? 
do you know that Christianity is about resurrection? It's going to take us a little bit to get there. We have to get some other issues out of the way, but uh, we'll get there eventually. Let's read here uh, Acts 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. So we have first the prosecution speaks. Listen to what he says. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Well, what do you think about that introduction? Perry Mason would never do anything like this, right? This buttering up the judge. It would not work in an American court at all. Um, If you were speaking before a judge who had got his position by flattery, maybe by bribery, you might try this technique, flattering him. Maybe that would work. It wouldn't work very well, though, before a, uh, a jury of your peers, right? Well, and actually, what's interesting about this is <laughs> Felix was, was kind of a rat. Um, he was brutal in justice. He was disrespectful to the Jews. Not only is this crass flattery, it's not even true or what they believe. Well, here we go. Verse 5, here his defense starts. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about these charges, that these, you will learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. And that's it. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now, why? that's very short. Very short statement. Um, it's a summary. That or Tertullus was working on a check that bounced or something like that. I'm not sure. Very short prosecutorial statement. Uh, the Jews actually have a problem. The problem is inherent in the text. They have a problem. They want Paul dead. In fact, they tried to kill him once. There was a lynch mob in Jerusalem. They tried to kill him there, and uh, the Romans rescued him from that mob. Uh, They want Paul dead. They don't like what Paul is saying about Jesus, and they don't like what Paul is saying more particularly about the Gentiles and how Gentiles can become followers of Jesus. So they want Paul dead. The problem is... They don't have the authority to execute someone, and Paul is in Roman hands, so they've got to convince the governor to execute Paul. Well, how are they going to do that? See, the governor's not going to kill somebody. The governor's not going to execute somebody for believing in this sect, this Nazarene sect, Christianity. So what he has to do, what the, what the, what the uh, uh, Tertullus has to do is convince Felix that Paul is guilty of some crime, sedition, uh, guilty of starting riots or being a troublemaker or um, guilty of treason against Caesar. That's what Tertullus is, is aiming at in his accusation. This is the question that they're trying to set before Felix. Is Christianity a threat? Is it dangerous? Is it dangerous to civil order, to the peace and prosperity of the empire? Are Paul and his teaching a threat to society? 
This question is not completely unfamiliar to us. In fact, um, as, as we witness in our culture the collapse of cultural Christianity, um, this is the question that people are increasingly asking. You can hear claims being published, being read and written, that Christianity itself is dangerous. In recent days, the Huffington Post, the Huffington Post is a newsletter, uh, newspaper online, and of course it, it leans left, admittedly pretty far left, but it had an article saying that the reason that evangelical megachurches are growing is because of segregation. Those evangelicals and their racism. Salon Magazine, another leftward-leaning online journal, uh, had this headline this week after the elections on Tuesday. Stop pretending right-wing Christians are being persecuted. They're the ones who just overturned LGBT equality in Houston. So Christians and Christianity are dangerous. They're dangerous to uh, their uh, freedom, democracy, minorities, homosexuals. We're dangerous. Christianity and Christians, they are a threat. Now, honestly, sometimes the way that we talk and the things that we say, sometimes that seems almost true. We'll come back to that in just a minute here. That's the question that Tertullus has to, or that Felix has to answer. Is Christianity dangerous? Now, in verse 10, Paul stands up and he starts to make his defense. So, Verse 10, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Paul does not lay it on thick like Tertullus. Verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. Paul says to him, listen, I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. It's hardly time to start a major riot or an insurrection against Rome. That's, that's just not true. And they don't have any evidence of it either. Now, as for being a follower of Jesus, of this Nazarene sect, look at verse 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Here comes the resurrection. First time it's mentioned here in this passage. Paul says, that's the issue, Felix. The issue is that I believe in the resurrection. And if they were faithful to the law and the prophets like they claim to be uh, of of Judaism, they would actually agree with me about the resurrection. Now, look at verse 17. His defense keeps coming. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Of of these who are here, or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today." There it is again, the resurrection of the dead. 
For Paul, not just generally the resurrection, but first specifically the resurrection of Jesus as a pointer of all that God is going to do, this is what Christianity is about. We proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe that through him, God is going to bring into fulfillment all of his plans. We are resurrection people. We have our eyes firmly fixed on the future. When we are at our best, and we're not always at our best, when we are at our best, we live out of that hope. Contrary to what you might think, Christians are not people who want to live in the past. Russell Moore said this not too long ago. We are people of the future, not of the past. We're not trying to recover the good old days. They weren't that good. We are visitors instead from the future. We are proclaiming the day that is coming. We're proclaiming a day when every empty stomach on earth is going to be filled and every broken heart is going to be repaired and every lonely soul is going to be settled in a happy, happy home, every disease punished, every, crime, uh, every disease healed, every crime justly punished, every human being endued with dignity. That day is coming and that's the day that we proclaim and celebrate. And we believe all of that future is coming because that is the nature and character of the Lord Jesus himself. And we can't think about the future without thinking about him. You can't think about the Chicago Bulls in the 1980s without mentioning Michael Jordan. You can't think about the American Revolution with thinking about George Washington. We can't think about the day that is to come without remembering Jesus because everything that's going to be true of that day is an expression of his nature, his supremacy, his wisdom, his power. And our hope for that future rolls back into the present. And it shapes us. It changes what we value and what we live for and what we think about and what we long for. Look in this passage about, about how it shapes how believers in the resurrection, how do they think differently about the poor? Paul was not in Jerusalem stirring up trouble Verse 17, he came to bring gifts for the poor and to prevent, present offerings. If there is a resurrection to come, if there is a day to live for in the future, it means that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That's what Jesus told a young man who came to him once. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. It, it can't exist in the abundance of your uh, uh, possessions because your existence is going to outlast this world. The resurrection frees you to be generous. If you are at Chuck E. Cheese, oh, mercy to you. <laughs> if you're at Chuck E. Cheese and you have 50 tokens left and it's time to go, give them away. You can't spend Chuck E. Cheese tokens outside of Chuck E. Cheese. There's no point in hoarding them for when you go to Walmart next door. They don't take Chuck E. Cheese tokens at Walmart. If your life, if there is a resurrection to come, if there is a life to come that exceeds this world, don't hoard what you have. You can't spend it in the life that is to come. You have this vastly different attitude towards the poor because of the resurrection. Think about what the resurrection means for Paul's attitude toward the government. He is telling Felix, we are not a threat. Followers of Christ are not a threat. We don't believe in insurrection. We believe in resurrection. 
Christianity is not a threat to a just government. Paul, Paul spends a lot of time dismissing that before he gets to resurrection. I'm not starting riots. I'm not getting crowds together. Uh, I, I was trying to go about my business of worshiping. We believe the new age is coming. We don't think it's coming from Harrisburg or Washington, D.C. Now, this is not an unimportant issue. This is not a frivolous issue. It's not frivolous for us to think about the conflict between what Albert Moeller calls erotic liberty and religious liberty. That's not inconsequential. But regardless of who wins the presidency, that man or that woman is not going to bring the creation into its resurrection perfection. Uh, we vote. We don't get angry about it. We don't get afraid. We don't get bitter. We don't talk about taking back our country. Why? Because someday Jesus is going to take it and do with it what he wants. If you believe in the resurrection, you can be patient. You can be content. You can't afford to be content or patient if there is no resurrection. If, if there is no resurrection, this life is all there is. And if it's not that great, you need to fix it. You can't be satisfied with it. You've gotta, you've, you can't leave the problems alone. You've got to manage it, fix it. You've got to make it right. Two weeks ago, I, I made plans. I made plans for my wife and I. I'm going to take a week off in February, and uh, we're going to go away for a couple of days. So just the two of us. It's going to be great. So uh, it's a limited opportunity. We don't do this very often. Just the two of us, we're going to be away for a little bit. And the thought has already crossed my mind, probably because my nose is so stuffy now. Our thought has already crossed my mind. I hope none of us get sick. You ever have that thought when you're planning your vacation? You're setting it in the future and you think, oh man, nobody better get sick. Little children, they have like this calendar inside them, 24 hours a day. 24 hours before you're supposed to leave. Right? how that works. Hmm. Uh, so we're going in February. I'm not shaking any of your hands after January 15th, okay? <laughs> Leave your germs off of me. I don't want them. We don't do this very often. We have a very limited window, and it better be right. Better be right. If this life is all you have and there is no resurrection, it better be right. And if it's not right, you can't afford to be content or patient with it. If, uh, what if you do, if this is all the life that you ever have, and you're widowed at age 52? That was not your plan. Or you get cancer. If this is all that there is, it better be nearly perfect. Otherwise, you've got to fix it. But if the resurrection is true, you can be patient. You can be content. We don't expect our best life now here in this world. I think that most of the content from the Huffington Post and from the Salon, I read both of those articles. The, the horrors of Christianity, they're, 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 they're inaccurate, they're shallow, they're ill-informed, they're not difficult to, to dismiss. But, you know, sometimes we who are Christians, we forget this, this resurrection, the centrality of it. And we start being obnoxious or weird or we get angry. Christianity is not about taking over the world. It's about living wisely in light of the world to come. Which actually leads me to the second question that I want to ask in this text. I want to ask you here. The first one is this. Do you know that Christianity is about the resurrection, how central it is to us? And the second question 
that I want to ask you is this. Do you know that resurrection means accountability? Do you know that resurrection means accountability? So in verse 22, Felix issues the most anticlimactic decision ever in a court of law. There's no bang of the gavel. There's no excitement here. This would be the worst case, worst uh, episode of law and order ever. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He makes a non-decision. Terrible. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Now we have a new character entering the scene, the femme fatale. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Now, if you're pregnant, Drusilla, again, I offer that as a good name. Good opportunity, good choice, Drusilla. Poor Brittany Brown is really hoping to give birth today. It's not too late, Brittany, wherever you are, Drusilla Brown. (laughs) That'd be terrible. Oh, well, Drusilla, she's an interesting uh, lady in the passage here. She's not 20 yet. Uh, Felix is her second husband. She got married when she was 13 years old, um, uh, an arranged marriage that her father, who was one of the Herods, had made for her. And uh, when she was 16, uh, Felix and uh, one of his court magicians convinced Drusilla to leave her husband and come marry Felix. Um, This is Felix's third wife, and... um, Drusilla had a reputation for being quite the lovely lady, lovely Drusilla. Drusilla and Felix had a child, a son. He died when Mount Vesuvius exploded in A.D. 79. Well, she's Jewish, and and so she should understand this more. This this is an argument about Judaism. So um, look how the text goes. Verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Now, Paul does in this passage what he always does in these meetings. He talks about Jesus. But he does something I think that I might not have done. Um, You might not either. either. You might have done this either if you think about it. He he talks to a man uh, hoping to get a bribe who stole his trophy wife from someone else, he talks to this guy about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. (laughs) These are some people who have definite problems in these areas. And Paul speaks about it with them enough, with enough force. He set this before them so much that Felix is afraid. Verse 15 in this passage is one of the few places in the New Testament that talks about the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. What are the wicked resurrected for? Judgment. If there is a resurrection, there is also accountability. What you do matters. What you believe matters. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be faced. 
and looking at their lives and hearing this from Paul made Felix afraid. Listen to what Daryl Bach says about this here. Uh, Particular to Felix. Paul challenges a common core value among many who have power, the idea that they are self-made people in control of their lives and need no one. Indeed, power often expresses itself in a desire to control or gain access to resources that they can abuse, that can abuse others in the process. It can care very little for others except in ways that use people to reach its own gain. Paul's directness here, borne out by Felix's own personal history, points to a need that Felix's, point to a need of Felix's that parallels what many need and need to hear. Felix is a powerful guy. He's impressive, he's smart, he's clever, he's got a very attractive wife, and he is very needy. Paul talks about what many need and need to hear. He talks to Felix about faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, one of the reasons that Christians can talk about judgment, the judgment that is to come, is because our hope and our belief is, is in a judgment that has already come on Christ himself. And we're always looking forward to the resurrection, but we're looking back too to what Jesus did. Now think about this with me in Paul's terms here. This is the good news that Jesus told to spread about him. He is perfectly righteous. Paul talked about righteousness. Jesus is perfectly righteous. He always has been. He always did everything that God his Father commanded him to do. He's the only one who ever did that. I can't lay claim to this record. You can't lay claim to this record either. He is the embodiment of self-control. He didn't use his power that he had to abuse or to take advantage of other people. What would you do if you had ultimate power? What would happen on the road if when somebody cut you off, the words that you said actually did something to them? There's a story about Jesus told about him when he was, um, this is an old story, but it's clearly not true. One day, a little boy in town made Jesus mad, and Jesus turned him to stone. He was angry. Wouldn't you be tempted to do that if you had ultimate power? Perfect in righteousness, Jesus was. Perfect in self-control. And yet, yet he experienced judgment. Not his own judgment, but our judgment. His death on the cross was substitutionary. It was for us. He experienced the judgment that we deserve because of our unrighteousness. I deserve because of my lack of self-control. He did it as an act of love. He died and rose again, and the word goes out. The invitation goes out to everybody. Jesus told us to tell people this. Come and believe. Turn to him Trust in him as your savior, as a sufficient payment for your sins. Flee from the judgment that is to come through him. Felix heard this and it made him afraid. What did Felix do? I I don't know. Text doesn't tell us what Felix did. The last we know, he's, he's leaving Caesarea. It's funny though, this is a trial scene interesting it's a trial scene but you know it's not really paul who is on trial here the jewish leaders are on trial liars felix is on trial 
Drusilla is on trial. The trial is about how they respond to Jesus. I wonder if you're on trial too. Let's pray together this morning, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this story of the the Apostle Paul, this courtroom drama. We thank you that, that you fulfilled your promise and that when Paul stood to speak, he knew what to say and was able to do it. He, he was able to exalt your son and speak about his resurrection. And we're mindful this morning. We think carefully about Felix and what he needed to learn and what awaited him, this judgment that was to come. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed for just a minute and your eyes closed. And I, I would like to remind you this morning that, that what Paul says here is true, that there is a judgment to come. Every single person in this room doesn't meet God's standards of righteousness. We don't express the self-control that we ought. And so we face this this judgment that is to come. It is certain and it's sure because it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible offers that you might escape this judgment by faith in him, by turning to him and trusting in him. You can have him. You can learn to treasure and value and follow him. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are very welcome to be here. And I I want you to know that this would be an excellent day for you to turn to him, to turn to Christ by faith and become a follower of his. At the end of the service, I'm going to be at the front of the auditorium. I'd love to talk to you more about this. We can discuss more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, we come before you again. We acknowledge thanks to you for this great story, and we are thankful to you for the great rescue that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who is the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray with John, and we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.